with the text that we're looking at this morning. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Um, We're going to go ahead and read that now, and then we'll begin working our way through. I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which with he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. God, thank you so much this morning for your word. God, I thank you this morning more than anything for the great love that you had, that you poured out of us. We sang about the marvelous love of Jesus who, who came down even when we were enemies of God. And I pray this morning that as we look at this text of Scripture, God, that we could leave this morning with a renewed appreciation for the grace that you have poured out into our lives. Guide and direct each part of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning, this is a very familiar text, right? I mean, all of us have, we've read this numerous times. We've heard messages on it over and over. And when we, we, actually, when we started, um, Marcus was talking about laying out Ephesians to start working through. And I was watching, it was like I was the third message in this. And in my mind, I was like, yes, I'm going to get to preach on this. Um, but one of the things is, as I began to study, there, the, in this text, in this passage, is the simplicity of the gospel. Is just, it's so blatant. It's so right there. And I, just, I want to be so careful. I don't want to take anything away from that. And I don't want to add to it either. Because it's, the gospel in itself is so simple. And yet it is so, so powerful. So this text, what we're, what we're going to do this morning, it kind of divides itself up into three different sections. Um, the first three verses are kind of a section, and then verses 4 through 7, and then verses 8 through 10. And we're simply going to work our way through each of those. Um, and again, like I had said, my, my prayer this morning is simply that we walk away, those of us who are believers, we walk away with just a renewed appreciation for God's grace, because we didn't deserve it. Not one bit of it. That's the point of grace, right? So he starts, um, he starts this text. The first, three, the first three verses here, I've, I've given him the title, The Depravity of Man. I mean, he starts on a, like a very negative note, if you will. We don't like talking about negative things. We don't t- like talking about how ugly we were. But I hope as we go through this and then as we look back at the end of this portion, these first three verses we'll see why it's important, why we understand what we were. Notice he says that you were 
this is what, and then he goes on to describe that. He's speaking to believers. He says, and you, I think the NIV starts it, as for you. It's almost like he, start, like he, he takes a more personal turn directly to them, probably referring to Gentiles, but he goes on in verse 3. He says, we all once lived this way. And he says um, at the end of verse 3 that, like the rest of mankind. So I think the point in that is there's no one that's excluded. Not one of us is excluded from what these three verses, first three verses, describe as what our state of being was. No one's exempt. So why, why does he start this section with taking a look back? Well, let's take a look back and then hopefully we'll see why. Because it helps us identify really what our condition was. What's the first thing he says that we were? He says we were dead. There was an exciting start. There is a way to get someone's attention if you want to really, really um, get something across. He says you were dead. What does dead mean? Do a word study on it once. It means dead, for crying out loud. That's simply what it means, dead. But we live in a world where we don't like to think of our condition as being quite that drastic. The world would tell us that the world would tell us that we're mostly good. That's a popular belief that's out there. We're mostly good. We only do bad things because our circumstances kind of drive us to that, right? Um, there's another that probably infiltrates into the Christian circles even more is where sin is seen as just kind of a mistake. We're just, we're just kind of sick. We need a doctor, yeah, but it's just, it's just a mistake. But Paul here doesn't, doesn't mince anything. He says you were dead. Um, not just kind of dead or mostly dead. There's this, this crazy uh, scene in The Princess Bride. Abby and I were talking about it the way to, on the way to church this morning. Um, the Whatever her name was, I can't remember the names of these people, but he was supposedly dead at, from the torture chamber, if your kids have seen the movie. Anyway, so they took him to this magician guy and his wife, and this magician guy is talking to him. But the dude's laying there dead. And the guy tells him, why are you talking to him? He's dead. And he says, he's not all dead. He's just mostly dead. Anyway, it's weird. But we're not just mostly dead. We're completely dead, like bone dry dead. If you look at um, back in Ezekiel, I think it's in 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, dry bone dead. That's what we were, all right? So we have to be able to grasp that. And obviously, it's not talking about a physical death. It's talking about a spiritual dead. We were spiritually dead. And that means we were simply lifeless. We were cut off from God. There was nothing in us that was longing for God. We were alienated from God, he talks about in chapter 4 here. And it's a state of being that we're in, and we are powerless to change it. How much, how much control does the Valley of Dry Bones, just take that for an example, how much power or control did those bones have over being come back to life? They had nothing to offer. So that's what he wants us to remember. So we're in a bind. We have a major problem. We're dead. <coughs> but notice that someone who is spiritually dead is living, lives in a life of action. And the world that lives, the spiritually dead actually think they're really living. Does that make sense? 
That's the way the world operates. We think in our sinfulness, we think we are really living. We're really living it up. Um, but there's a peace that is completely missing. So Paul goes on then in, the, in verses 2 and 3, and he describes, I think, what he's describing what it means to be spiritually dead and what that kind of a life looks like. And there's, there's three different forces that I think we can probably narrow it down to that are the controlling factors of our lives when we're spiritually dead. There's an external force, there's a spiritual or a supernatural force, and there's an internal force that are controlling or have the power over our lives. So let's look at those really quickly, and then we'll move on through it. <clears throat> the external, I would say, is in verse 2. This is the way that you walked. So there's action. Walking is an action. Following the course of the world. So it's going with the flow that is laid out. Um, so when someone sets a course, use the um, your, your race, Brent, the Amish Country Marathon. You set out a course, right? So that is that dictates where you're going to. That's where you can run. You you can't run off of that. So the course of the world is that's dictating, it's controlling, it's an external force that's controlling how we're living our lives. You can't just go where you want it. It's got a control and a grip on you. Um, what is the world? What is this world that has that grip on you? First John 2, verses 15 and 16, describe... Just give us a glimpse of what the, this world is. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world, I think you can boil it down to, it's the attitudes, the habits, the preferences, the values that we have. And the behaviors that are completely in contrary to the holiness of God. So there's an external force. But there's also a spiritual or supernatural force that is controlling or has a power over our lives. Um, In the end of verse 2, he talks about the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Spiritual warfare. That's not something anyone really enjoys talking about. But Paul references spiritual warfare more here in the book of Ephesians than any other writings in the New Testament. And we have a danger, I think, of minimizing or making too much of spiritual warfare, right? There's, there's always two ditches on all this stuff. Um, but a prince, he calls this, this ruler or this prince, and that, that is simply a ruler of a region. So it's someone who has power and authority over you over us in our sinful state. And he says the power of the air, there's different ideas of what that means, but I think it's simply referring to the area of his domain. You think about where's air. It's all around you, right? Everywhere you go, there's, there's air. So that, that spiritual force, that spiritual warfare is all around us all the time, and it's also invisible. You can't see it. You can't see air, but the reality of it is right there, and it carries with it devastating effects. Um, He says that spirit is at work in the sons of disobedience. So let's not underestimate that that force in our lives. But then there's also, see, sometimes we just want to blame everything on the devil. It's just the devil's fault. He made me do it. 
But notice what it says in verse 3. We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We lived in the passions of our flesh. Um, We won't turn to it, but Galatians 5 talks about what that looks like. But I think it also refers to our sin nature, the nature that's in us from birth. Um, I heard Tim say um, the other day when he, when his baby, little baby girl was born, he said it was the first baby that he ever saw that he thought was actually cute. <laughs> don't tell him I said that. Actually, I don't care. That's fine. But from birth, our hearts are set against God. That's that nature that's in us, that sin nature that's in us. So it's an internal thing that we are powerless. All these things, these three things, and we do, wrong, we do it injustice if we've, we put all the emphasis on the spiritual warfare or all on the world or all on just the internal, our human nature. Because it's all of those. And all those things carry devastating impacts in our lives. And he ends verse 3 with saying that we are children of wrath. Um, I think the NIV um, translates that objects of wrath. And I think that might be a little more accurate or maybe easier to understand Simply, we're doomed. That's the bottom line. Because God's wrath in His justice is poured out on sin. Because of His holiness, He cannot stand in or stand with that sinfulness. God's wrath is the punishment that we deserve. Like the rest of mankind, He says, we deserve to be destroyed. God's holiness demands perfection. I just read through... um, I had been doing a 90-day Bible reading thing, and I kind of got stalled. Um, but I had read, like, read through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all that law that God laid out for the children of Israel. And I was like, man, I'm glad I didn't live then. I'm so thankful I, I live now. And yet the law that God laid out for the children of Israel there was perfect. It wasn't, the law wasn't flawed. But the law showed and it kept revealing the imperfections. And I tell you, when, when someone messed up, Aaron's sons offered a sacrifice, sacrifice that was unauthorized. They were killed. It was almost like you look at someone wrong, boom, you're dead. That's almost what it felt like reading. It was like, man, this is heavy. This is hard stuff. But that's exactly what we deserve because we cannot live in perfection. And what the Old Testament law does, I think, is it changes our behavior. It changes our outward, how we live. But what the, that law was powerless to do was to change the internal. And so we're in a bind. We are in a major, major bind right now. And you think about that, and we ask ourselves, is it really that bad? Is it, is it really that heavy? I think, it, I think it is, and I think it's maybe even heavier than we were able to grasp sometimes. And I wondered as, as, I, as I was studying and thinking about this for the last several weeks is, you know, if you're, those of you who are like me anyway, I grew up, I was good. I, I never did something far out. I wasn't a, a druggie, a rapist, or, you know, because you look at someone whose life, um, take Isaac Newton, isn't he right, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, I think he is, Slave trader. I mean, he was just in awe of God's grace. Because what, what has he done to deserve it? And what have I done to deserve it? 
And I think we forget or we minimize the predicament that we were in. Not even a predicament isn't even a fair word because it was, it's way worse than that, if you will. But the point of Paul, I think, here taking us back, looking back, is not to put us on a guilt trip or to make us feel oh, just terrible about ourselves. But I believe the more that we grasp the depth of our depravity, the more it magnifies the grace and the mercy of Christ. And we forget what we've been delivered from. And so Paul asks us to take a look back. And now you can take a deep breath because those next two words in verse 4, verses 4 through 7 is what we're looking at next. It says, starts with, but God. I, t- I tell you, when I, I was studying through this and I, I kept going over those first three verses, it was just, it was so heavy. And you get to that, but God, and it was just like, oh, wow, aren't you glad, aren't you grateful for the intervention of God in our lives? Because our condition is absolutely hopeless, and we are absolutely powerless to change it. There's nothing that you and I can do to change that but God. But God. And he begins this transition from being lifeless and hopeless to being condemned and powerless to change he begins to transition, and we see what it is to be alive in Christ. So the next, the next verses 4 through 7, he talks about being alive in Christ. What does that look like? Where does that come from? And you see, you see this up here. Um, when I saw that right at the start, Brent had posted that with the introduction to our, to our um, series here on Ephesians. I mean, that's... That's this text right here in a nutshell. And I, w- I couldn't manipulate this thing, but right there in the center where the darkness turns to light, I see a cross with grace written on it. And that is how we move from death to life. You and I had nothing. We were powerless to change our death, dead situation. Why would God do that? Why would He do that? We didn't deserve anything. His character demands it, if you will, but his, his character is what drives him to redeeming us. His character is what drives him to making us alive in Christ. And the character that we see here in verses 4 through 7, the first one is he is rich in mercy. I don't know how you begin to describe the richness of his mercy. Um, there's no shortage of it, for one. He's rich, it's more than adequate. Um, read Psalm 103 sometime. It's a beautiful picture of God's mercy. But let me, let me read. I found this definition that um, in the Vines Dictionary about mercy, how it defines mercy as it's used here in verse 4. It says, it's the outward manifestation of pity. So it's one thing to pity, God having pity on us, but it's something else to do something about it. That's mercy. It's the outward manifestation of pity. It assumes on the need of the part who him who receives it and resources adequate to meet the need on the part of him who shows it. So God's mercy is completely adequate for what we need. And then he goes on in um, verse 4. He continues with the great love with which he loved us. And it says that even when we were dead here, Romans 5, 8 says while we were still sinners, he loved us. It's not a love that's conditional. 
We could, we're, it's easy to love someone who loves us back. But God didn't wait till we love, could love him back. He loved us before we ever had the ability to love. So any ability that you and I have to love another now comes because of his great love. It's not that we're good. It's not that we got anything together. It's his great love being... And he talks about uh, grace, God's grace. That's another one of his characteristics. Undeserved favor. It's simply saying it's all God, it's nothing me. And we'll look at that uh, more when we get down to verse 8. And the richness of his kindness. Kindness is something we don't talk about a lot, but God is incredibly kind. That's who he is. It's the very nature of who he is. And because of that, because of his mercy, his love, his grace, his kindness, we who are dead, dry bones dead, suddenly we're alive. That is absolutely, it's nothing short of a miracle. That's, that's what it is. And, <coughs> excuse me, it points right back what something that Brent preached on last Sunday. Verses 19 through 20 in chapter 1 says, And what was the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believed according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. I think this is, this is directly tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that was necessary to breathe life into us. Think of Lazarus, when, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus is in the tomb, all wrapped up, and the dude is dead. Does he have anything, any part that he can play? Is he sitting there, he's dead, but can he think about what he has to offer? Can he convince Jesus that he's worth making alive? No, he's dead. But Jesus, at his command, brings life. And that is where, that's the only place where our life comes from. Um, it is, it's made alive. It's an action. Something that our outward efforts could never accomplish, what the Old Testament law could never accomplish in changing our hearts. Something deep inside, a spiritual aliveness now happens that connects us with the Father. It's the Father's intervention through Jesus Christ on the cross and, and the, the power of the resurrection, and now the Holy Spirit invades us, and we're alive, alive like we've never been before. Think of, think of how your life changes, the passions, your desires, your drives, the things you value, the things that you long for. Suddenly those change. It wasn't your own doing. And he breaks into that. If you look at verse 5, he breaks... Actually, verses 1 through 7 are like one long sentence. But then he breaks into, like he, he, he inserts this phrase, by grace you have been saved, right into there. And I think that's very intentional because it's, it's all God. It's not me. And I'm so, so grateful for that. And we don't have time to look at it, but notice what he says. You were made, made alive together with Christ. You were raised together with Christ. And now we're seated together with Christ. So there's a, in that there's a spiritual, there's a power, there's an authority. The things that governed and ruled our lives are completely different. Um, the, the word with, together with, has the connotation of being synced, like computers being synced together. So, just food for thought, you can think about that. 
Verse 7, we're going to skip over it, but read it in the New Living Translation. It's so powerful. It's, it just drives home the point of, again, again, salvation is not about us. We, we like to make things, we naturally want to make things about ourselves. Even, our, even salvation, it's not. It's our salvation. God saves us so that people are drawn to Him, so that glory is drawn to Him, not to us. It's like the, as if the created would be drawing attention to self rather than to the Creator. So we've been made alive by God's grace, and then he wraps it up here in conclusion with describing the new creation, what that looks like. A new creation. Paul wraps it up by reinforcing the beauty of grace and the actions of a grace-filled life. He says, by grace you have been saved, and then he adds here in verse 8 that it's been through faith. And faith is simply, I believe, the human response to the extravagant grace and mercy of God, and it helps us be able to grasp what has just happened in verses 4 through 7. That's our faith is that response to that. It's an instrument by which we lay hold of that truth. But he goes on and he describes grace just a little bit more here, and it's worth at least looking at briefly. He describes grace, and he says it's a gift. Right? We, we all know that. So what is the nature of a gift? If there's a gift, that means there's going to be a giver. Right? If there's a gift, that means there needs to be a recipient. If, there's, if it's a gift, that means there's a cost to the giver. The cost for our, the grace poured out on us was Jesus on the cross. And it's free to the recipient, or else it loses its very nature as being a gift. It cannot be earned and it must be accepted. If a gift is rejected, is it really a gift to us? And so a transformation, think about the transformation that has taken place from the first three verses to verses 4 through 7, and these are all because of God's grace and the fact that His grace to us is a gift. We were dead to sin. We're made alive in Christ. We were the sons of disobedience. We're raised with Christ. We were children of wrath. Now we're seated with Christ. We were objects of wrath, now we're recipients of mercy. We were objects of wrath, and now we're recipients of his great love. We were objects of wrath, and now we're recipients of his great kindness. We were objects of wrath, and now we're recipients of his great grace. It's a gift, and he goes on, he says, it's not your own doing, and it's not a result of works, because he doesn't want anyone to be able to boast. Paul had said, and I think, in one of his other epistles, he said that he will boast in Christ alone. It's not this thing of let's get our act together so that we can come to Christ. We come to Christ as we are. He loves us. He calls us as we are. And then Paul talks in verse 10, he talks a little bit about works. And obviously that's, I think, I think maybe he brings this in at verse 10 because works do matter. If there's no works, has grace really taken place? That's the question I'd like us to think about. But he brings it in at the end after verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 7 and making it so crystal clear that you and I had absolutely nothing to do with our salvation so that we cannot boast. We cannot boast because it had nothing to do with us. He says that we're his workmanship, which 
I think it's used, that term is used one other time in Scripture, and it's talking about creation, everything that we see. So what does all creation do? Did all of creation have anything to do with being created? It was spoken by God and spoken into place, and all of creation shows forth what? It shows forth His glory. That's what creation is there for. And now we are new creations, and that's what our lives should reflect. Our lives should reflect His glory. God shows His beauty and His handiwork in creation. And now our lives are to reflect His beauty and His handiwork. And He says that we were created for good works. That means we were created, we're new creations for a purpose. So we have a purpose to fulfill. But just hear this. Works are not the root of our salvation. The root is where the life comes from. But they are the fruit of our salvation. And we have all, we talk about the, there's two ditches to the whole thing. We either, many of us grew up in a very works-based culture, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a part of that, there's truth in it, in the works part of it. But when we, we put that extra emphasis on it, on our works, we diminish grace. And that's, that makes mockery of grace. And then on the flip side is when live as you want because grace, you're saved anyway. That makes a mockery of grace because it abuses grace. And I don't think God wants us to be on either side of that. But we are his workmanship, and so people should see our good works, the lives that we now live, and they should see God in it and being drawn to him. We must draw the focus and the praise to the creator, not the created. And the last phrase there, that we should walk in them, I think it's almost like it just brings it full circle. He starts off with the life that we lived, how we walked when we were dead. And now that we're alive, it's come full circle, and we walk in the works that God created. And he spends, um, like the last three chapters of Ephesians, kind of delves into what that life now looks like. Um, The walk of the spiritually dead is sin and disobedience. The walk of the spiritually alive produces fruit because Christ is the root. So just to put it all in a little nutshell, we have been saved from the wrath of God by the grace of God for the work of God. And I hope this morning, dig into the text, think about it, appreciate. I hope we leave just in awe of God's grace this morning because he's so worthy of it. So I'm going to close it. We're going to wrap it up there. Why don't you all stand? We'll have prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. God, thank you for meeting us here this morning. Lord, our hearts are are humbled. Our hearts are filled with gratitude this morning as we think about the grace that you poured out into our lives. God, we were in an absolutely hopeless situation, and we were completely powerless to change it. And yet, because of your great love, your richness and your kindness and your mercy and your grace. You've made us alive. You've made us into something that we could never, ever be by our own strength. And so we simply want to stand in awe of you this morning. We recognize just the great gift that you've given us in our salvation. And we thank you for it, God. Help our lives to reflect the gratitude that we feel in our hearts 
And I pray that the lives that we live as we leave here today, um, even like we talked about in Sunday school, about how we operate our businesses and all of that, would reflect the grace that you have poured into our lives. And so it changes everything in us, everything about how we live in our day-to-day lives. For your honor and for your glory, dismiss us with your blessing and help us to have a great week in front of us. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.